The following is a hoop ball presentation. Since we were going for a while, I went back and looked at our old episodes and saw how much we did. It was crazy. And you'd have been running it well before I even got there. So it's a rich archive of just great stuff we had. So it was fun to get you back here, man. I'm happy to have you on. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this before. We wanted to just have a talk on, on just hoops. We've had, you know, it's been a month and change now since the NBA got shut down due to coronavirus. And we've just you know watching old games or going crazy in our own interest or just kind of finding things to do and you know you came with this great idea of just talking about love of basketball because i knew i had to get you on we had to talk that was going to have to happen and here we are and it was just the, the love of the game what got us to where we are you writing obviously you know with the nba but just in general you've always been so passionate about basketball that's been my thing as well and so you know i wanted to just i guess hop on into it uh for you, where did the, the game start for you? Did you play basketball growing up? Obviously, I would imagine you did. But in general, kind of how did that grab hold of you and go, you know what, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I didn't play basketball, like, competitively, basically past, like, middle school. Um, I mean, I always, I continue to play, like, recreationally. And I just do, like, it's my favorite sport to play, uh, maybe besides tennis. But, um I did play and I do play recreationally, but really what happened was it was around like 2004, I'd say, when I really started to get into sports in general. And, you know, at the time I was in New York City, so I was a Knicks fan and, you know, they weren't the best way to get into basketball because at that point they were, you know, <laughs> either mediocre or just straight up bad. Um, they yep. made the playoffs in 2004, but then like they had like six straight losing years or six straight, like almost 50 lost seasons, basically. Um, but really around that time, 2004, you know, the first couple of years I was getting into sports and basketball specifically, it was actually the Phoenix Suns teams that really made me fall in love with the sport. Um, and because they would play like the late, they'd always play the late games. Um, I always have to catch them on like Sports Center the morning after, or like use like the desktop computer we had as like a family to like search for their highlights and box scores. Um, but I just remember like the, the ball movement, like how fast they played, you know, for that time, um, you know, the, the amount of three pointers they took, like all of it was kind of, I guess, kind of geared toward a younger audience. And I think even today, you know, younger fans tend to gravitate towards those teams who are more offensive oriented, you know, play fast, et cetera. Um, but back then that, that was the team that was playing that way when I was starting to get into the sport. And I just love, I mean, I, orange is my favorite color. And it was just like so many things combined from that, those Suns <laughs> teams that like made me fall in love with them. So I followed them like kind of like secondhandedly through other sources, basically for like the first couple of years of, of being into the sport. Um, but, but basically like, you know, like two years in or three years in, I was just so hooked as, as a basketball fan, mainly from those Suns teams. Laughing as you were saying that because I, as soon as you described the Phoenix Suns and the energy and you're talking about the colors and everything, it was like basically love it at first sight, right? <laughs> with, with just and all of that. That's fun. I didn't even, you mentioned this before in terms of, I think you were saying on Twitter watching a classic, how uh, much you love National Running on uh, seven seconds or less team, but that is fun. Uh, I had a similar experience to you uh, growing up in New York, uh, growing up on 
Knicks. I used to think that Latrell Sprewell could do no wrong, <laughs> <laughs> which is ironic kind of growing up and finding out about him later. But just yeah. in terms of the way he played, I thought he was crazy good and I was following them. Uh, it wasn't until I want to say like 2003. It was it was actually that time. And it was horrible timing because they had just finished their three-peat and they weren't going to win another championship for another couple of years. But um, the Lakers, I saw purple and gold. I like the color scheme. Like, you like the orange for the Suns. I said, you know what? That's my team. That's what I'm going to follow. And, you know, I found myself convincing myself about the great um, attributes of Smush Park, Kwame Brown, <laughs> Brian Cook, <laughs> those guys. But, um, yeah, I'm right there with you. It was just a side of play. And with the, with the Lakers, I guess it was that dominant individual talent. And with you, it was that team aspect, that run-and-gun style. Um, did you have any other teams – Side of them, I know, you know, just in covering teams, you've you've probably definitely picked up favorite players and stuff. We'll definitely get to that. But just teams that you were like, you know what? Okay, this is the team that I first grew my love with, but I've liked, I don't know, the Pelicans or, you know, whatever team you may have liked. <laughs> yes, I mean, the seven seconds, or se- seven seconds or less Suns were the team that got me into the sport. Um, always have fond memories of them. And, and even it's ironic because, like, you became a Lakers fan, but I actually never became a Suns fan. Um, (laughs) and I think it, I mean, I think really what, why that was, was because, you know, I still was basically a Knicks fan while I was falling in love with the Suns, those Suns teams, which, you know, at the same time made me fall in love with the sport in general. But then the way, and everyone knows this by now, but the way things happened were D'Antoni left the Suns, uh, in, in 2008 and went to the Knicks, which was my team. So it made me kind of love the Knicks even more because, you know, D'Antoni was the coach. I didn't really know too much about him besides the fact that he was the coach of the Suns teams that I loved. And so that really bought me into the Knicks, you know, even more than I was, say, you know, in 2004 through up until 2008, basically. Of course, what happened was in Knicks, in classic Knicks fashion, they went on to suck <laughs> almost every year he was there. Um, but there were like small moments as a Knicks fan during those years that really you know, continue to push my love for the, for the game. Um, and, you know, the Knicks, I think that the 2011-2012 Knicks, that lockout um, season, is, is one of my favorite teams um, that I kind of, and I really closely watched that team. That that was one of those teams where I, you know, at that point I had started watching like almost every Knicks game. Um, whereas, you know, in 2004, 5, 6, I was just, just getting into it. Um, but if Good anyone... Timing. <laughs> if anyone doesn't remember that year, that was the that was the Lin Sanity year um, in February uh, of 2012. Um, well, that's when it first happened, and I actually was at Jeremy Lin's breakout game against the New Jersey Nets at MSG. His first breakout game of Lin Sanity. I think he had 25 oh. points. Was challenging uh, Darren Darren Williams like over and over again, um, and, and the Knicks won, and then they won on that, like, seven-game winning streak, and he had all those games, I mean, all those memorable games, the buzzer beater, not the buzzer beater, the game winner against the Raptors, um, that game against the Lakers at MSG. Uh. Uh, <laughs> you know I did that one in there. Um, yeah. But, like, Lynn Sanity was uh, something that was like, oh, my God, like, this is such a great story, like, underdog, like, you almost couldn't help but root for it. So that, that continued to push my passion for basketball and the Knicks. Um, but then like, um, you know, they had already traded for Melo and I wasn't a big Carmelo Anthony fan. And just the way that it, that season ended where Melo came back and basically was like, you know, I don't want Lynn having the spotlight and, you know, stuff like all those nasty reports. D'Antoni had to resign cause they were clashing. And at that point I, I just, I kind of fell out of my love for the Knicks. Um, and I don't know if it was because D'Antoni was forced to resign. You know, Lynn got hurt and the team just like hit a, a plateau of Melo just like putting up numbers and the team 
you know, not being that good. Um, and so I just, at that point, I just kind of like stopped being a Knicks fan, like slowly graduated out of being a Knicks fan. I was like looking for a new team to root for. Um, because at that point I was still mostly a fan. I hadn't done any like writing or, or anything media wise. So I was just a basketball fan and I wanted to have a, fa- a team to root for. And so I was just looking around the league and, you know, I happened to come across the Rockets who were like, I was doing some like reading into the Rockets. And that's when I discovered like Daryl Morey's strategy, uh, the analytics, the three pointers. Um, and it was ironic that I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try and see if the, if the Rockets can be my new team. And this was the, the following season. So the 2012, 2013 season, of course, what did the Rockets do five, four days before the 2012 season opened was trade for James Harden. Um, you know, who I was super familiar with because obviously the Thunder were in the finals the previous year. And my brother happened to be an OKC Thunder fan. So he, I, he was telling me all about Harden for the past, you know, three years when he was a six man. So they <laughs> trade for Harden. They had Lynn cause they signed him that year in free agency. Um, to that, you know, infamous like poison pill contract. Um, And they had just like this weird, just like this collection of people that were like, you know, I don't really know these guys, but they've got Harding, they've got Lynn, they they like to take three pointers. They're going to be my new team. And, you know, that 2012, 2013 rocket season is like one of, one of the more enjoyable seasons I watched as a fan. Um, Because it was almost so like innocent, like there was no expectations. It was Harden's breakout season. Um, you know, they eventually had some of my favorite role players of all time, which we'll get to in, in terms of my favorite players ever. But a couple of them were on that team. Um, it was just a fun team that like just like kind of play. It was just it was just a weird group of people that were just happened to be together at the same time and then you yeah. know play basketball like there was because the plan, <laughs> people don't remember that the plan for the Rockets, you know, before they traded for Harden. Um, and, you know, they had acquired all those assets to make a play for a superstar. But if they didn't trade for Harden. Their their big offseason was was signing Lynn um, and signing Omar Ashik, one of my favorite players ever. <laughs> and and <laughs> that was their offseason. Like they had Kevin McHale as coach. They had missed the playoffs the previous like two to three years. Um, and their plan was like you know Lynn and Ashik and role players. Like let's see what that does for us. And it's kind of ironic because like you know Sam Hinkie was a part of the front office and his whole thing was like not staying in mediocrity. But like if they didn't trade for Harden, that's exactly where they were going to be. But they traded for Harden, memorable season. Um, that's like a glimpse of like the timeline of, of my basketball fandom, I guess. <laughs> oh, well, listen, I mean, coming from me, no, no, knowing you uh, for a couple of years, I had only known the Rocket story. So to understand that you were a, a long-suffering Knicks fan for a little bit, that was <laughs> that was something else. I am uh, I am better for having heard that. And I was gonna say you're describing that Rockets team. Yeah, it was a you know you love to have those teams that have you know, expectations. They overachieve. They do good. I mean, you were talking about you know a collection of players that you know just have to play and play for each other, fight and not play with Dwight Howard, and I mean, I'm sure that that was a great experience there. I mean, for me, I always do this thing where I pick, um, my obviously my team stays the same. The Lakers are my first diehard team, but I always have one or two teams that I would find myself, be finding myself attracted to over the course of NBA season. And so what I've done is I have this little weird rule for myself now where I give myself two other teams to, like, watch that I think I'll be interested in and following through the course of the season, like how they'll work. And sometimes I stick with the whole year. Sometimes I'm out of, out of favor with it. But those teams are there. And it's either because of who uh, they made. Um, I like the way they acquired a player that I think will be interesting to monitor moving forward. And so 
I've had a couple over the years, so they've included, I'm going to kind of run through them. I've had the Spurs on there for a minute, the Thunder, uh this past as I've tried to, you know, cover the NBA and try to be more objective. That's always for me. <laughs> Just to, you know, hey, you know, this is the team that, you know, I'm going to have a soft spot for. We're talking about the Lakers, but that the teams and everything else in general for the love of battle. I find that as you know, start doing this to be and very much when it comes to my Lakers. Like I don't care, but um, that's where I get. While we're still on this team, kind of, um, for and this leading to the second another question we have coming down the line, but it's gonna be when we'll see if it happens. What would you call your honest memory of the of the Houston Rockets for you? Um, hmm. It was on the spot. I'm sorry. It just I, came up. Yeah, I mean, so I, I really did. I love the 2012-13 team. Um, but, you know, they didn't do a lot. I mean, I will say this. You know, Harden's first two games as a Rocket were, like, two of the most memorable games. I've, I can still vividly remember, you know, watching those two games. The first one was against the Pistons on the road on Halloween on, on 20, in 2012. And he had that 37 point, like 12 assist game. And I was like, wow. I, I knew he was good, but I was like, and everyone had the same uh, reaction was like, oh my God, like this guy, like he could be a superstar. And then he follows that up with like a, uh, is it 45? I think it's 40. No, it's 42. <laughs> I think I can't remember exactly what he had over 40 points against the Hawks on the road. And they won that one. And I was like, oh, like this guy. And it was like he just been announced that he got a max extension for five years. And they were like, you know, this is a risky trade. I mean, you know, is he really going to be a superstar? But they're paying him like one. And he has those two games. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this guy could be really good. But the 2014-15 team is um, also like a, a fond uh, memory. And that was probably the last Rocket season I had watched before I started writing about basketball. Um, because the summer of 2015, I started to write – and cover the Rockets uh, almost as like a media member. But but, but for that 2014-15 season, I was still a fan. So it was kind of a different perspective. And that team was like, you know, it was Dwight's second year. They had just come off the first round upset to the Trailblazers. And, you know, it was like, are they going to be any good? You know, what's the ceiling here? And, you know, Dwight missed half that year. And it was just like Harden and like the ultimate collection of role players I mean, I've got to pull up the roster because I don't think people remember how ridiculous this Rockets roster was that year. But it was just basically it was kind of the first glimpse of like how much Harden could carry a team. And so they made the conference finals. You know, they lost to the Warriors pretty easily, but they had that memorable 3-1 comeback against the Clippers. I'd say game six um, of that series, that that big comeback in the fourth quarter is, is one of the more memorable Rockets experiences I had as a fan. Um, but that whole season was just like, how are they doing this? I mean, you look at this in terms of like the um, in terms of minutes played for this team. I will t- let's get let's run down. <laughs> let's run down who, who the, led the team in minutes played. Harden was number one, obviously. Trevor Reza, number two, solid three and D wing. Donanus Montiunis is th- number three in minutes played that season. Number four is Patrick Beverly. Number five is thirty-seven-year-old Jason Terry. <laughs> number six <laughs> is Corey Brewer. Number seven is Josh Smith, who everyone, if you don't remember, the Pistons had to waive Smith because he was that bad in Detroit, and they, the Rockets picked him up midseason, and he was seventh in their minutes played for the entire season. Um, eighth was Dwight. 
Ninth was Terrence Jones, and you know, just to round it out, number ten was Joey Dorsey. Uh, a number <laughs> eleven, <laughs> a number eleven was Kostas Papanikolaou, who I mean, he played like two years in the entire NBA. I mean, it's a it's a team that's like, how on God's earth did they win fifty six games and make the conference finals? But that that because they did that, they were one of the like the most enjoyable teams to watch. Um, and then I think like. Although it was different because at this point in 2017-18, I was covering the team. It still was incredible to watch that version of the Rockets every night. I mean, they won 65 games. And it was just like pure Harden and Chris Paul dominance that was just like, you know, like that star power like you talked about before. Like, I do love teams that kind of operate as like, you know, just consistent ball movement. That's what got me into the game. But I do really appreciate individual star play. And that team had it. So those in terms of the Rockets, those are probably my fondest teams to watch and you know i'd say game six against the clippers uh in 2015 was probably the fondest game uh well at least for the fourth quarter it was the first three quarters were painful (laughs) (laughs) no i definitely i I get you on all of that that was interesting i shot to joey dorsey man that was (laughs) that was a callback (laughs) see i missed this deep dive eric would always do this for those listening on the 94 podcast man we'd be going to the numbers into the minutes breakdown it was sometimes. Um, for me, I'm gonna run through quick Laker memories. I remember almost the misery parts the best. Um, rooting for Smush Parker, really thinking he could be somebody out here. Um, never really liking Kwame Brown, but thinking they should have started a uh, rare forward by the name of Brian Cook. Um, who was I don't know, like kind of shoot the three. Really thought he could be a long ball weapon next to Kobe. I remember that. Um, obviously, 2010, the back-to-back championships, uh, how tense I was in that Game 7 watching it, how big Ron Artest came through with that three was amazing. Um, and that also being a game I'll reference later, but just one of the uglier games in recent memory for myself. Um, and then some other random points, we had the games that we overachieved and that we should have lost. You could really just pencil in any mark marquee game from... 2014 to 2018. So matchups against the Warriors, matchups on Christmas Day, games that we were there because we're the Lakers, business being there, and we felt that we represented. And one of those games that I really, really enjoyed, and I had to pull it up just because um, it's just as I thought it was. 2014, Lakers versus Heat. And Mm -hmm. again, it's the tail end of, you know, um, in his heat tenure, so you had LeBron, D. Wade, Chris Bosh, the back rings. Um, the Lakers at this point in time, we were a year removed from. Uh, <laughs> we were a year removed from the last time we were in the playoffs at that point, which was the this is going to be fun team that fun at all. Um, <laughs> with that, <laughs> right, with just Mike and Tony coach during that playoff series. <laughs> It was horrible. It was, it was, yeah, that was, I was so. a brief moment to uh, recognize what a ridiculous season that was. I mean, the firing, (laughs) they fired Mike Brown uh, like six games in or something. Then they hired, they, people were thinking about Phil Jackson coming back, but then they go with D'Antoni. But I don't, a lot of people don't remember this. Only I would, because I've, D'Antoni, which we'll get to later, is one of my favorite coaches. Um, mm-hmm. He couldn't actually coach the team yet because he was having uh, knee, sur- knee or hip right. surgery. I can't remember. I think it was uh, that knee. You said it, yeah. Yeah. He couldn't coach the team. So he actually, like, um, they had um, 
Bernie Bickerstaff, I think, was the guy who coached um, for like six games or something. And yeah. then Tony finally joined the sidelines. And then, of course, you know, he was with Nash again, but but spoiler alert, Nash couldn't play anymore. And so uh, D'Antoni trying to run his system, his system with Kobe, who obviously D'Antoni didn't work with Carmelo, even though they're different players, but you know, still kind of the same, you know, dominant scoring wings. Dwight Howard, who wants post-ups and a, and no point guard. And people were like, oh, D'Antoni's gonna turn this around. And I was like, with what? Like they have the players, but they don't fit. They can't play. And it's, you know, trying to implement his system midway through a year is like impossible. So what a just what a complete disastrous team and season that was, but so captivating. It really was. I mean, you nailed perfectly in that brief sum up, and that was thank you for that. Because I mean 34-year-old Kobe, again, a legendary year uh, in the midst of all that drama, averaged 27 points, five rebounds, and six assists, leading the team in minutes per game uh, at 38 minutes a night. Then you had Dwight Howard, who wasn't fully himself yet. Uh, he was just coming off the trade and then back surgery, and he was out of sorts, and the different system was there. Paul Gasol only played 49 games for us that year. Uh, he was 30 minutes played. You had Metal World Peace. Uh, kind of slipping offensively, but he was still decent. Uh, he was one of the sl- only, like, solid pieces for us that felt like that season. Steve Nash, who I was so hyped for. I was rubbing it into all my Suns fans and everything. <laughs> and I, I should have known. I mean, he was 38. You know what I mean? Like, he broke his leg in that one game. I think it was that preseason game. And it, it just what that that started his, uh, his Lakers tenure in the wrong foot. He never quite got there. He played 50 games. Um and just wasn't the Nash we wanted, even when Mike D'Antoni came, you're right. And then after that, you know, Steve Blake was a serviceable guy. Then we get to Earl Clark, the the, the artist formerly known as Antoine Jameson. Uh, <laughs> Jody Meeks, who actually came good later uh, for us. Chris Duhon, who somehow was way to convince people he was an okay point guard. He, he wasn't horrible, but... Right, D'Antoni, yeah. made that, D'Antoni made Duhon's <laughs> career for like three or four different seasons. He has a... Yes, he has a 22 assist game. I'm pretty sure as a member of the Knicks, I remember this, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you nailed it. And he made, you're right. He made it for three years. Three years in New York. And then one year with the Lakers, he made it that way. He, 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 was, he was on the map as a point guard in his league. And it was all thanks to Mike and Tony. And you're right. The playoffs came, and it was a wreck. I mean, we're playing Steve Blake, Chris Duhon, starters, um, Andrew Gadlock, and Darius Morris minutes for us. Steve Nash was in two of the uh, but he was already at that point at the end of the line. Uh, Dwight Howard played and had some flame outs there. It was a mess. It was a mess. And yeah, you, you nailed it. I just got to interrupt you for one second because I just googled uh, Duhan uh, 22 assists and just to find the exact game of when it happened <laughs> I'll tell you when this happened. <laughs> November, okay. November 29th 2008. It was during D'Antoni's first season as Knicks head coach. The Knicks were playing the Warriors, who, again, if people don't remember, were atrocious that, that year. Um, yep. They were, it, it was uh, – so the Knicks won 138 to 125. Uh, let me run – this is a very incredible Knicks box score here, by the way. D'Antoni, yeah. in, only in late November, is already only playing seven people in the, in the rotation, <laughs> which, by the <laughs> way, is, is incredible. Duhan played 45 minutes in a regulation game, okay? <laughs> he had 12 points, the, the 22 assists, like we mentioned. Then, one of my favorite players of all time, and really one of the players that really carried me through those terrible Knicks teams was David Lee, who, in this game, did 37 points and 21 rebounds. <laughs> Al, 
Al Harrington did 36, had 36 points and 12 rebounds. And then you've got the collection of Quinton Richardson, Wilson Chandler, um, Tim Thomas. Just really a spectacular box score uh, from November 29th of 2008. <laughs> but, there you go. Those are some gaudy numbers. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that because I had no, that was, it was like everyone was there getting two carries up on that game. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Those were the times. And so, I mean, bringing it back to the Lakers on that one with how they ended 2013, 2014, we were like, Oh, well, no, let me I was delusional. And I thought the a max agent, that was the, the tenure we were chasing everyone from LeBron James to Greg Monroe. Um, swinging and missing on everyone. I think 2014, that was the year of Carmelo Anthony, if I remember correctly. And I don't know why we thought we were going to get him. Um, we ended up not. We had to settle for uh, Marshall and Wesley Johnson. But um, we um, went to that Christmas game, and we were already 16 and 27. And I was like, oh, if you squint long enough, you could think we're 500, which nobody was thinking that except myself. But, um, yeah, the Lakers were, you know, Christmas game against the Heat, and the Heat were 31 and 12. And we thought, oh no, this is uh, this was, this wasn't the Christmas one. This was um, the one I'm the one I'm referencing right now was when we lost by seven, which I considered a victory. But <laughs> the one that we lost um in the Christmas time was a game that, I, as a Lakers fan, I sat and looked and went, oh, this is gonna be horrible because we're trash. The Heat at the time were 22 and six, and we were 13 and 16, which was already better than we thought that we would be. And um, instead. We came to play. I mean, first off, I'm just going to run through. Sean Williams was our starting uh, power forward, right? Our starting lineup for the Miami Heat first, just to kind of get a sense of the significance here. You already know. Mario Chalmers, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Shane Battier, Chris Bosh. Matching up alongside of them, Jordan Farmer on his second round of duty for the Lakers, (laughs) Jody Meeks, Wesley Johnson, who'd already flamed out from both the Timberwolves and the Suns at this point. Sean Williams, who you, he played with the Knicks. He might have had a oh, run. I, I, I remember Sean Williams. <laughs> there you go. And then Paul Gasol, who was in the first of like two years where he's like, why am I here? And then fortunately Chicago came. Um, but it, And then off the bench, Nick Young, um, Xavier Henry, Gordon Hill, Ryan Kelly, and Steve Blake, Chris Kamen, Ken Marsh, and Robert Sacre were all um, injured or, or did not play. And we came in that game. And we, we were hanging around because people that we weren't expecting to wake up and make shots were doing just that. Uh, Jody Meeks knocked down four threes. Wesley Johnson knocked down four threes. But the game who came to play was Swag P, who, looking at the stat line, he only had 20 points, knocked down four threes, had two rebounds and one assist. But looking at that game, I thought he had 35. Like, he was taking shots with LeBron. He was taking the same shot, like, no conscience type of shots that – we all know Nick Young to make or, or take, not make really, but to take. And they were going in. In the third quarter alone, he only played five minutes in the third quarter. Had 12 points, four or five from the field, two or two from three. Single-handedly, it felt like keeping the Lakers in that game because we were struggling. Um, that's kind of the name of that season. But definitely in points, especially without Kobe, to find a guy to play through offensively, it felt like. And we lost by six, one on one to ninety five. But that was that was like one of my favorite memories concerning my team. Where I went, oh yeah, this team I think I'm gonna like. And did I? No. But like, like <laughs> I remember deluding myself into thinking that I would. But, um, you know, while we're talking about that, I think it's a natural transition talking about favorite like moments. What was your favorite players? We we talked about the Rockets. You mentioned some of those role players. Let let's get a read on. Dig deep, Eric. Let's see some of these guys. 
Uh, hold on. Before we get to playoffs, I have to mention one of my last favorite teams uh, of oh, okay. pretty much of all time is the 2014-15 Atlanta Hawks. Um, oh, this oh, was a team – this was a team, it was almost like a variation of like D'Antoni's system, um, you know, a little bit, you know, more deliberate, not as much focused on, you know, being the fastest team in the league, um, but so much ball movement, just such a selfless team overall. They obviously didn't really have a, a superstar. They had, uh, that was the year they had their entire starting five, I think, as all-stars, or they had four all-stars, um, but they didn't have like a superstar you would consider, and they still won 60 games. They were good on both ends of the floor, you know, that had a very modern style of play with like an, a a good amount of three pointers, you know, they, they had a little bit of variation, Al Horford, Paul Millsap in the post sometimes, but just like such a, almost like a, such an out of nowhere team that like from afar, obviously I didn't watch like all of their games that year, but like from afar, you could just like appreciate the way they play and just root for them because they're so selfless. That was again, one of my favorite teams um, to watch, but yeah, players. Um, I mentioned some of them before, but I, I, it's really interesting. I think my, my whole basketball fandom is so weird because I, I got into the game because I love like the offensive styles and, and fast pace, three pointers, ball movement, et cetera. And yet like a lot of my favorite players are actually underrated guys that mainly are defensive players. It's like the opposite of the, the, the team styles that I like. Um, but Patrick Beverly, I, I think, is probably in my top three of favorite players uh, ever. Um, for those who don't know, for those who don't know, he was actually the inspiration for how I named the podcast that Corbin and I used to do. It used to be called the 94 Feet Report. And Patrick Beverly, when he broke out into the league, which happened during that 2012-2013 Rocket season, um, he called himself Mr. 94 Feet. And so I just – when I was thinking of starting a podcast, I was like, oh, my God, 94 Feet. Let's just do a podcast name off that. Hence, you get the 94 feet report. So credit to Patrick <laughs> Beverly for helping my career. Um, there it is. <laughs> but um, Omer Ashik, like I mentioned, uh, it was just such a uh, – you would be shocked if he ever made a layup. Like the way he uh, – whenever he went up for a layup, you would be shocked if it went in. But this guy – <laughs> He always looked like he was out of breath. He couldn't keep up, but he was just like always a rebounding machine. Um, didn't block a lot of shots, but like he was that classic guy that, that the Rockets identified as super underrated by the advanced stats because he was a guy, you know, for two or three years with the Bulls during the Tom Thibodeau era was, you know, kind of a fringe bench player who'd play like, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes a night. But the advanced numbers always said that he was having a big impact in those minutes. So what the Rockets did was they signed him to the same contract they signed Lynn to, which was the three years, 25 million, where it's the first year, the first two years were like six million each. And then the final year was like 14 million or whatever, the poison pill. And what he did was the 2012, 2013 season, he becomes a starter, plays 30 minutes a game, averages a double, double. And it's just like a huge, like almost out of nowhere impact player defensively for them. And it was a big reason why they were able to make the playoffs, honestly, besides obviously hard and carrying them. So had a big love for him. Um, just like he knew he knew what he could do. He was one of those guys who didn't want to overstep his talents, which I think is something very unique in the NBA. And, you know, I can appreciate that. Um other guys like P.J. Tucker are on that list. Um, and I think, you know, I do obviously have a soft spot for elite creators. Obviously, you know, becoming, you know, falling in love with the, the Suns teams when I started watching the sport. Steve Nash is one of my favorite players ever. Um, and in that sem similar vein, like James Harden became, you know, one of my favorite players. Um, just because, you know, the scoring was one thing, but the passing was another thing. I just love really elite passing. Um, so they're two of the, you know, greatest passes of all time, I think. Um 
other guys, I'm just gonna. It's gonna get it's gonna get weird and random here, but let's just have <laughs> That's fun my with list, it. man. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> um, I always had a really soft spot for Dwight. Um, I always thought he was underrated, and you know, when I was growing up, when he was in his prime, I I just naturally gravitated to his personality because it was such a fun personality that made it really easy to connect to him, um, which you didn't really get because all the other stars were like you know stone cold kind of assassin personalities, and here's Dwight smiling and talking about eating two pounds of candy a day, like such a relatable person. Um, so I always had a, a <laughs> relatable <laughs> in that sense, not, you know, being seven feet tall, being monstrous athletically, but oh, uh, of course, <laughs> you know, I always had a soft spot for him. Um, Joakim Noah, again, kind of, kind of like Omar Ashik, but like more talent offensively. Um, but again, a guy who really didn't want to do more than he could do, um, which I appreciated. Um, David Lee, like I mentioned before, um, Boris Dial was one of those guys who, when he joined the Suns towards the end of D'Antoni's uh, tenure as coach there, uh, I just fell in love with like his just such an unorthodox game. Uh, he was yeah. like a big man, but kind of in those days was kind of able, I mean, with the Suns, because D'Antoni, I think, was ahead of his time. He was playing DL at power forward and center. But during those years prior, he was like playing small forward, which is like kind of weird. But I have a, I have, I'm a sucker for playmaking big men. So Noah, Boris Diaw, um, you know, Nikola Jokic is great to watch. Uh, Marcus Gasol, another reason why I love Marcus Gasol is his passing. Um, yeah. Sean Marion, another reason. I mean, Sean Marion was more because he was just a do-it-all player, um, really great defensively, but also, you know, a lot of playmaking from at that time was, was a front court position. Um, interestingly enough, when I was a, a Knicks fan, Landry Fields became one of my favorite role players ever in his first two years because this was a guy who was a second-round pick and was like, you know, hitting threes, he could handle the ball a little bit, you know, gave a lot of effort defensively. Of course, his career, you know, just fell off a cliff once, you know, he went to Toronto and then this career was over. <laughs> but for those two years, he was one of my favorites. Um, and then some other guys, you know, I love like floor spacing guys like Ryan Anderson, um, Jared Dudley, because I, I think Jared Dudley is a great personality. And that's actually, I've actually been more of a fan of Jared Dudley, like over the past three to four years than I was when he was in his prime because of his social media presence. And like, <laughs> The, the the Nets Sixers playoff series where he was like you know trash talking and going at the Sixers even though the Nets were a huge underdog. Um, so those are just some of my random uh, favorite players of all. It's such a weird list, but I do tend to like uh, guys who are like underrated defensive minded players, which is completely in contrast to the types of teams that I like. <laughs> I like that. No, I mean you. It was interesting, like you said. It was you had a mix of like, uh, um unsung heroes some good solid pieces uh players who kind of fit your personal style that was good mine is mine is a great you said yours was weird um <laughs> i already started with uh latrell sprewell i can dig back to some older players i've looked at um or an older player i looked at and liked partially because i feel like my game kind of is more like his as far as playing and partially just because i liked his play uh mark aguire mm -hmm. um yeah he was someone i liked growing up like i said uh, Spree, when you had Spreewell, I mean, him and his family he had to feed, you were good. But um, it went up to uh, it went up from there to Monte Ellis. Who oh, I was boy. <laughs> that I is a name. <laughs> yep. In fact, um, I have um, my fantasy basketball team is called Montes and uh, <laughs> instead of Dante. So I was all up in there. Yeah, I was all over Monte Ellis right up until he went to Indiana and disappeared forever. Um, and then someone who bridged the gap between that um, and my my latest guy was Be Easy Michael Beasley. Oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> Michael Beasley 
was like again everyone i bank on being stars just end up not being that but um i thought michael Beasy was gonna be it man i was really excited for him you know played Miami, he went to phoenix phoenix is kind of where he lost me as far as like as to having someone who i was convinced would be the next great nba talent he was a great talent but like we're talking i was thinking top five one day which just shows you how delusional i was um when he went you, to were, phoenix you, were, and- you were certainly not alone on that though Oh, okay. Well, see, I appreciate that because I was like, I'm going to take him. He's going to be great. Went to Phoenix. He had a chance to have a starring role, and then he averages 10 points a game in that 2013 year. That was a lost year for Phoenix, and after that, I was like, okay, you're you're kind of just stay in your role. You can kind of get – and then he went to China, Miami, back to China, back to Miami. You know, just some weird stuff there. Uh, they played for my Lakers. Uh, it just so happened to be last year. I wish he played with LeBron this year. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, he'll be – on my favorite team, and he'll be with one of the greatest of all time. So surely Michael Beasley would catch a break. And it just happens to be one of the more dysfunctional teams of LeBron's uh, career and um, just another lost year. But that was another player. Um, Derek Williams, uh, if you remember him, was a guy I liked. Um, U of A, went Minnesota, and then I think he was with the Kings, and um, he played with the Cavs a year, and I think the Knicks too. Um, he was another guy I thought would be really, really good. Um, I like these tweeners who – don't really particularly adopt the three-point shot, but have some offensive versatility, but never quite take over in that dominant way that I expected them to. That's kind of my type there. Yeah, you um, certainly do have a type. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the ones people are like, what? But that, and then lately, um, the last it started with the 2017 season that really just took me away. I once Kevin Durant left, I really followed him. You already know who I'm going with on this one. Um, Russell Westbrook, man. Uh, <laughs> I was in his corner. All of 2017, I've been on it ever since. Even as I had acknowledged, okay, maybe, you know, maybe he's not exactly what I thought he was. But I always thought he got a bad rap. Um, Again, these irrational confidence guys are my heroes because of how I play. And that's me. And it kind of identifies with who I am. Um, And I've just been all over them. So that's kind of like the all-star knucklehead team, I guess you could say. But um. Well, I don't mean to stand in a negative way because Russell Westbrook walks the beat of his own drum, but he's he's a good guy. But like in general, just these uh all over the place guys. They're 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 my people. I love them. Um I, I guess you gotta throw Nick Young in there. I always <laughs> was on the Wesley Johnson train until I really wasn't. Once he got crossed over by uh James Harden, he was dead to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't have that guy as any one of my favorite player lists after that. <laughs> but um yeah, that was – you have any other um, off-the-bench guys who kind of covered your team? I think that was all of mine um, because I, I have so much love for those guys that lately I've adopted both Terry Rozier and Devontae Graham. At first I was like, I have to choose between the two, and then I was like, well, why not both? So they're on my list too. <laughs> Dude, I, I am a big Devontae Graham fan. Uh, a couple of others I'll name. I mean, he probably wouldn't make like – if I had to make like a top ten list, he probably wouldn't make it, but Chris Paul would be right as an honorable mention – um, just, you know, the way he approached every game, he brought it on both ends, just that will to win. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I really did enjoy his game, just like how he could always, he knew what his spots were and he was going to get there. Um, and then in terms of like weird world players, uh, I'll put, um, uh, Carlos Delfino on that list because oh, wow. <laughs> because the 20 he was one of the, the 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 cast of characters for the Rockets in 2012 2013 and he just came in there and was like perfect for him it was towards the end of his career I think it was the last year he played in the NBA actually um and he just was it was perfect for him because they wanted to bomb the threes not as much as they do now back then interestingly enough another reason I love that team and I actually went back 
the other day and watched some of the games from that season is that Harden played a completely different style. Um, you know, back then he was actually like he would use the pick and roll to, to kind of step into a mid-range jumper. Um, his step backs would be in the mid-range um, still from three two, but not like today. Um but Delfino was one of those role players. So was Francisco Garcia, but he, you know, just such a tenacious defender. But Delfino in the 2013 playoffs, you can YouTube this if you forget. He had a poster dunk on Kevin Durant. <laughs> I think it was game four, I want to say. Uh, it was just so incredible. Like, I couldn't believe he dunked. But, you know, just that three-point bomber had, had a pretty fun personality on the court. So I'll throw him on the list. But I think that's pretty much everyone that would, like, come to mind, I guess. You know, that's solid. I mean... Again, you have a thought-out way. I like that you dig up these, like, bench guys that we're like, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah, that guy. Because I forgot myself some Francisco Garcia. I remember him on the Kings with uh, Kevin Martin. He's another yeah. honorable mention for my team. That was, uh, that, was, that was good. All right, so we got the players. I, we talked about favorite teams, but I guess I want to throw a little wrinkle in here. I, knowing that you have your teams in the NBA, like, the back of the hand here, what is your favorite, like, okay, let's year team. So, like, for me – I really, really enjoy it. As far as like an overachieving team, I, I want to say the twenty. I like okay. No, here's here's where I go. The twenty fifteen Mavericks. I loved the, that team. Um, I liked them before they made the Rondo trade, especially. But when they had, I think they led the. They had like one of the best offenses at one point, and it was Jameer Nelson, Monte Ellis. Again, he's a hero. Um, <laughs> you had Sean Marion. Um, you had Chandler Parsons. Um, and then you know it was uh. Jameer Nelson, Monte Ellis, Chandler Parsons, Dirk, of course, and then Tyson Chandler was back with a second go around for the Mavs. And they were so fun, and they were bombing threes, and I love the way they played. And then they made the trade where they basically swapped out um, Nelson and Crowder for, uh, um, oh my goodness, Rajon Rondo, which I didn't like as much. But that was one of my favorite iterations, like a team that I enjoyed, like a one-hit wonder kind of team. And then another team was... Um, and this again, I, I love dysfunction. This is my life. Um, the 2016 <laughs> Chicago Bulls with the three alphas. <laughs> oh my god, that is that is reaching peak dysfunction levels right there. Oh, <laughs> I loved it, man. Did you have like a one team? This is like a segue to our next thing. But did you have like a one team kind of um like iteration? You already mentioned the 2013 um Rockets. Does that hold peak for you, or is there another team? And this could be anyone. And you're like, wow, you know, for one year you mentioned the Hawks. Okay, like. Not your favorite, but one that you're like, you know, I kind of like that team too. I think I'd probably go with that Hawks team. Um, mm -hmm. Just because they just, I just love so much about them. And obviously they were winning a lot and they were completely, I mean, I think they were overachieving given like the yeah. actual talent to win 60 games without like a superstar is really hard to do. Um, and they did make the conference finals, even though they got swept, but like that, that's probably the team I pick where it was like one season. It was like a blip where I was like, Oh my God, like I really love this Hawks team. And like, <laughs> if I, if I can make the time to watch their games, like I will. And, you know, I think we'll probably get to this later, but one of the best games um, that they had that year and in, in the, that the entire league had that year is when they played the Warriors, um, when both teams, they were one and two in terms of record playing in Atlanta and the Hawks won. It was like one of my favorite games like ever, because it was a random, like regular season, like Thursday or Friday or something. I don't even think it was on national TV. It was one of those games <laughs> where like, you just felt you were being rewarded. If you were like an NBA nerd, uh, like you were just like, you had league pass, you were going to watch it anyways, but like, it was like an absurdly a uh, high execution game, but that team, I think I go with that Hawks team as like that one season where you just kind of get like captivated by a, by a completely different and random team. 
No, I love that. That and that that's true. I remember watching them with like in awe of wow, this is amazing. I almost the same with like a mix of awe and disgust with that uh, 2016 Bulls team that I referenced. <laughs> but um, I have to mention, I'm I'm not going to convince you right now. But if Rajon Rondo hadn't broken his thumb. I do think the Bulls sweep the Celtics, but we're gonna move on. We're not even gonna let you refute that one. We're gonna go on <laughs> to uh, we're gonna go on to favorite coaches here. I know you referenced um Mike D'Antoni, but if you want to dig in more on him, what what are your favorite coaches just in your NBA watching lifetime? Yeah, D'Antoni is number one for sure. I mean, it, when when you are coaching the team that really got me to fall in love with the sport, I mean, you, you're gonna be number one on my list. Um, you know, he also has a really good personality, you know, a fun guy and, you know, just seems like a really guy, easy to root for. And, of course, I think his style of play is, is you know, I, I, I think you can win with it. I just think that he's had some pretty bad breaks in his career. I mean, obviously, the, the Warriors took a lot of his principles and they, you know, they dominated the league, you know, with variations of it. But he's definitely number one. Um a couple other guys that, that have made the list over the past couple of years, I'm going to put Mike Budenholzer on her because, again, when you coach, you know, one of those – one of my favorite teams, like, of all time, like that 14-15 that Hawks team, uh, you, you're going to make the list. I mean, I just think that <laughs> his – is you know emphasis on a modern shot chart, a lot of threes, but I think his his willingness to to try new strategies, um, and I think you've seen this a lot with the, with his second tenure now with the Bucks is you know that their defensive strategy of of you know they actually give up a lot of threes, but they they that's their strategy. It's part of it. They're giving it up. They're giving up the wrong threes to the to the right shooters basically. Um, you know how they started doing um, their defensive scheme of guarding Harden on the side. I think they were the first team who really actually started doing that. Uh, yeah. I just love his ability to, to kind of take risks. I think that's a, a really you know key part of being a really good coach in the NBA. I think all of the coaches that have been great have you know done something unique or have taken a risk from time to time. Um, Rick Carlisle makes this list because. Um, you know, he always gets great buy-in from his guys. I love the systems that he's been running offensively. You mentioned that team in 2015 was was having the best offensive season. You know, now, um, before the season got suspended, the Mavericks had, like, one of the all-time great offenses. Um, I love Carlisle because, you know, he's done a lot of uh, multi-guard lineups, um, which have been kind of unique. Um, but he's had so many guards on his roster. And this was a lot of the time this was when the Mavs were bad. Um, but that gave him more room to experiment, which I kind of liked. He was just like, you know what? If we're going to suck, like I'm going to experiment the hell out of this roster. And he did that. So I think that's really <laughs> cool. Um, but he makes a list. Quinn Snyder is in the same way almost where it's like, I just really I like his approach to the game, his style of play, the buy-in he gets from his players. Um, a name I'll mention, I wasn't actually around for uh, this guy's you know, coaching career, but Doug Moe makes my list of favorite coaches <laughs> because – I obviously have gone back and read and watched videos about his coaching tenure, mainly with the Nuggets in the 1980s is when he kind of had that peak. But if you just do research on like the offensive system that he, you know, emphasized and practiced was basically they were like running and gunning the fastest pace in the league, but they had no set plays. Just all like, you know, you hold the ball for one or two seconds, you pass, you cut. When you make the pass, you cut, you know, under the rim, around to the, to the three-point line, even though no one took three-pointers back then. Um, like, it was just, like, pass, cut, you know. Obviously, they had stars like Alex English, Fat Lieber, Kiki Vandeweghe, who could finish the shot, finish the plays with shots. But, like, just, like, so many – it was just ball movement. It's almost like a precursor to the, to the beautiful game Spurs that just, like, kept the ball moving. Um, 
And it's kind of frustrating because, you know, you stumble upon what he did in the 80s and you can only wonder, like, what his offense would have been like in today's NBA with the modern spacing and all the three-pointers. But back then, you know, it'd be, you'd be surprised if a team took more than, like, five threes in an entire game. So, you know, his offensive system, uh, I think, is really actually pretty revolutionary. And I think, you know, when people talk about the, the kind of the revolutionary coaches in, in the NBA history, I feel like Doug Moe's name gets left, left off the list a little bit too much where it's like Doug Moe and D'Antoni did a lot of it. But, like, you know, there's so many coaches that have done so. Rick Adelman has done a lot of stuff great offensively. Um, but I think Doug Moe is one of those underrated guys. Again, I really can't have him at the top of the list because I wasn't around when he was actually coaching. But just going back and learning about kind of what he did, I, I have – I kind of gained an appreciation for him. No, I get you. That was a very solid group. And Doug Moe especially, that that – deep dive you just did or kind of describing a style of play i know he had a quote i can't even remember it now but he was basically talking about like positions i want to running no that was um what oops got the coaches mixed up no that was uh paul no that was um man i'm getting all my coaches messed up paul westhead that's mm-hmm. who it was anyway um doug mo though i do remember him as far as like watching the classic games and that running gun nugget style was certainly something to behold. Um, okay, so again, going with the coaches of mine or my own favorite coaches, some that are standard, I guess, as a Lakers fan that you have to put up there. So Phil Jackson is automatically there. Um, Pat Riley is right there as well. Um, they kind of have to be. Um, I, I, I give extra points to uh, coach failures. Like if I like you as a coach, but you messed up, for example, uh, Phil Jackson, he wasn't actually coaching at this point, but his assistant on the triangle in um, the Pace and Space <laughs> NBA. <laughs> well, the irony will never be lost on me. And I think it's hilarious. Um, Pat Riley, I think I, I give him extra credit just for his versatility coaching. Um, that was kind of rated taking a, a, a fast paced showtime um, Lakers team and then going basically slow, grounded out, defensive-minded with both the New York Knicks and the Miami Heat. And I actually blame him for, we're going to talk about this later, but just some of the worst NBA basketball I had to witness in my lifetime <laughs> um, with, with 90s Knicks uh, Heat games that ended in the 70s. Oh, my gosh. I mean, him having been on the first team to really set the tone there and then transferred over to the next team. Yeah, boo on him. Um, you mentioned Mike D'Antoni. I may not have been a fan of him as a coach, primarily because of how our Lakers tenure worked out, but I do appreciate his candor and his locker room um, quotes. I think he's one of the more funnier coaches for sure, and he's a big part of the Seven Seconds or Less book written by uh, Jack Mc- McCallum, and that was an amazing book um, mm-hmm. all over that. Doc Rivers got me. He didn't used to have me, but I, I see him, what he's done more with less with um, some Clippers teams before he ended up getting both Kawhi and Paul George really impressed me. Uh, you know, working out with the Lob City Clippers and the team, really unlikable in my opinion, but making them kind of come together. I think that he's severely underrated just for what he gets out of teams um, and kind of overachieve. Um, even what he did with that early times of the Magic teams I had to throw out there. Um, Greg mm-hmm. Popovich is up there uh, just because I love grumpy old man yells at clouds. But, you know, he's also like really kind of funny um, and his teams have always been kind of successful. And you got to give credit to that. And then my personal favorite, another one that I didn't really get to watch too much in my lifetime, but I did catch one epic series. Um, Don Nelson. Mm. Don Nelson for me. Um, I didn't really get to see Run TMC, wasn't around then, but, you know, I did see the We Believe Warriors, and uh, you mentioned 2008 being one of the worst Warriors teams of all time, and that, but 2007, that's how quick has it fallen. 2007, they felt so great, and 2008, they were so trash, but <laughs> you had, you know, Don Nelson in general um, revolutionized it in a way, not only pace and space and spread the floor, but back then to 
Um, it, he would have, you know, he'd play small ball lineups, have the center way out in the three-point line, not because they could even shoot threes, which I thought was interesting, but just because you had those old three-in-the-key rules and the defensive rules so that you had to have the defender at least respect the guy out there. And by at least pulling him out close enough that you don't get called for that penalty, you open up the lane enough for you to have easy, you know, wide-open lanes to the basket. I thought it was crazy um, how quick he was at that. And then, like you said, like later on, playing um, in that We Believe series against the Mavericks, playing Al Harrington, Steven Jackson, kind of going small, Monte Ellis, Barry Davis, and playing uh, Jason Richardson in a small four, literally running and gunning in threes. And, I mean, you know, the legendary Don Nelson is crazy, but for those types of plays, I mean, he has Nelly Ball named after him, really putting on the point forward role with first uh, Marcus Johnson and then others, um, just kind of having be the thing where you can just kind of have a, a forward bring up the ball and initiate offense. I thought it was really crazy and, and really fun. And even now you can look at how his fingerprints are all over the NBA just by different rules that he's had, you know, and different ways that he was able to change the game. Um, for even using Manute Bowl for three pointers. Uh, <laughs> he, I think he jacked up. Uh, he gave Manute Bowl in the eighties, the green light to shoot threes and Manute Bowl jacked up like a hundred of them only made 20, but like but one of the most incredible jump shots of all time too. It's like, he was like pushing it with his hands without even trying to shoot a basketball. Exactly. It was insane. <laughs> it was like a slingshot. It was funny. I think there's that made the rounds, but if anyone looks up Manute Bowl six threes, I think he made six threes against the, uh, 70, uh, the Suns and Charles Barkley's reaction. Yeah. <laughs> Slung the ball up over his head and it just pop into the rim. It was amazing. But um, yeah, I really think you know even now you see Giannis and LeBron and others uh who can uh, Luca who aren't exactly point guards but are primary offensive initiators from the next spot. I think you chalk up a lot of it to Don Nelson. So he has to be my favorite. Um, but but yeah, that was that was interesting. Coach Coach Memory Lane. I hadn't even thought about that one there. But um. All right, so we're moving on to the next segment. We we got lots. Wow. See, this is what I always miss too while we're here because this is part podcast, part trip down memory lane um, for the viewers <laughs> here. We used to go in depth. We'd be going long on these pods, and here we are already at almost an hour. Um, this is it's kind of crazy, but we talked about favorite teams, favorite players and coaches. I had to put a little negative Nancy there. What team or teams did you just hate? growing up or even now i mean like i guess i could say that. yeah what teams do you look at and you're like oh my goodness here they are hmm hate okay hate is a strong word for me uh oh, there's definitely yeah. <laughs> teams that like i didn't like them um let's put it this way like the warriors right the warriors when they broke out like 2012 2013 2014 um, and 2014-15 was the breakout season obviously but those warriors were like really fun to root for um because they were just getting on, establishing themselves on the scenes. They had a really nice, a pretty good style of play, especially when Kerr took over. Um, but basically, once you get past 14, 15, I, I found them really hard to root for um, because, you know, they were winning a lot, obviously. Then they got KD. Um, and then, you know, and this ties into, like, just the overarching thing is, like, those 2017, 2018 kind of seasons, it was just, I was so sick of seeing the same finals matchup that it made me, like, not like the teams like like I just was so sick of them winning and I was like ah you know I don't really feel as excited for the season because I know I was going to be in the finals and you know we had that for a couple years and that kind of really kind of dampened things I think and I think you saw that this past season even though unfortunately 
you know, it might be over with the suspension. But, you know, people were so excited for this year because there was no, like, clear cut, like, oh, yeah, those two teams are definitely going to be in the finals. Like, that's, that was kind of the excitement that was lost for a couple of years because of basically the Warriors' dominance, but also because of the Cavs and the, the weak East. But those Warriors teams, I think, you know, they got KD and, you know, it was just, you know, the cockiness. I think it was hard to root for them after the 14-15 season. Yeah. Um, I'd say a, t- a team that really pushed my love, like really test my love for the for the game of basketball was the 15-16 Rockets because this, <laughs> this was a team where it's like, you know, some teams like there's dysfunction, but they let they hide it from the court. Like this was a team that was like just yelling at each other on the court during the games. It was just a complete disaster. I mean, you know, they made the conference finals in 15. They make the Ty Lawson trade, which everyone was like, yeah, this is great. It's going to give James Harden another ball handler. You can play off the ball. Of course, Lawson was never the same from, from the previous years with the Nuggets where he was putting up like all-star numbers almost. And then Dwight and, and uh, you know, Harden got into it. They fired McHale 11 games into a season, even though they made the conference finals literally like seven months ago. That still uh, bugs you. Just it was. I, I mean, and, and the funniest thing is that McHale. I didn't even think McHale was a good coach. Like, but but just like the the, the so quick how quick it was to 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 kind of have the scapegoat. Um, and what's funny is that JB Bickerstaff at the time was like a highly touted assistant. And I was like, I got excited when they promoted him. I was like, oh, I've heard so much about this guy. Like, he's supposed to be the next great head coach. And of course, you know, he's gone on to do you know pretty much nothing as the coach. But that team, the, the the chemistry issues, you know, they 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 didn't deserve to make it, but they made the playoffs. And the, of course, they were the eight-one matchup against the Warriors. They actually won a game in that series, you know, out of sheer, you know, probably the Warriors not paying attention and Curry getting hurt. Um, but that team was like just paying attention to it up close was one of those teams where it's like, oh my god, like this really tests your love for the game of basketball, having to watch every game for that team. Um, because I was actually covering them and writing about them at the time, which was just disastrous. Um, but that's a team. That's a team that's like, I was kind of like rooting for them, but also like, God, I couldn't stand them at the same time, which is so <laughs> unique. But that's that's definitely a team that I really didn't like. And you know, being being a fan of the Seven Seconds or Less Suns, you know, I, I have to kind of be uh, disappointed and annoyed at the Spurs for eliminating them. You know, in three different years. Um, the only reason I can't really say I hated them is because I actually had so much respect and in kind of enjoyment for their system and Popovich. But like 2007 was really frustrating for me because at that point I had really established myself as like, you know what, I'm a Knicks fan, but the Suns are my B team and they were playing the Spurs in the playoffs. And of course, you know, the hoary hip check on um, Steve Nash and, and Boris Diaw and, and Stoudemire getting suspended because they left the bench. Like that was one of those moments for me. Like I didn't realize the um, significance of it in the grand scheme of things. Um, because, you know, a lot of people say now if that didn't happen, the Suns might have like made the finals that year because they were the best team and they would have had an advantage in the series um, because they, they dropped game six. Um, but uh, oh, no, they dropped game five, sorry, because they got, it happened in game four. But that was one of those moments where in the moment I was like so frustrated and like annoyed and like yelling at the at this TV. Um, but again, I can't say it, I just had so much respect and enjoyment for like the way the Spurs play that it. They didn't hate me. I didn't hate them. But, like, just the fact that they kept eliminating my favorite team was, like, so, so disappointing for me. <laughs> I feel you on that. I was – I feel bad that I opened up some um, <laughs> unhappy feelings there. <laughs> but, you know, I had to do it for the sake of the pod. You know, that's why we do these now. <laughs> Especially when we talk about the team you like and just the so, like, dysfunction and dissolving of said team. Um, 
I have pretty much the same. I mean, I already mentioned that this is going to be fun. Not at all. Lakers. Um, I didn't like, but I have a weird thing about super teams. So I didn't like the, um, I didn't like Heat at all when they first started. But after they, it's like, I feel after this team loses, then I'm okay with them because you've been humbled in my opinion. So yeah. like when the Heat started, I, I was not a fan of them at all. Then you get beat by the Mavericks, who liked even less. I almost liked less than them because how they steamrolled past my Lakers. But <laughs> when they beat the Heat, I went, okay, you know what? That's fine. I'll accept it because the Heat, they needed you can't just put a team together and microwave that and think that you have a championship team, right? It didn't even matter that he won the next two because I felt that LeBron had learned a lesson, quote-unquote. So I was okay with that. Um, the Warriors, the same thing. Like, if they had had their iteration, they were winning everything, it was all too easy for them. Yeah, my Lakers were playing them well. So on an individual note, I guess I was okay with it because as long as my team did reasonably well against them, like, I knew they were the better team. But the 2016 happened. They won those 73 games. I had a fiery passion. I wasn't going to lose, especially when I was on the LeBron James train and that's one comeback. In fact, I own like all three. Um, I have like the games of them, like the wins I've all over. Just I will watch again and again and again, just the comeback of 3-1. And we're remembering how that loss was. And to make it even sweeter, I was in um, California on game seven at a random oh, wow. uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. Yep, and I was rooting, this is how funny and crazy I am, I was rooting for the Cavs while wearing a Lakers jersey in a California, <laughs> in a California <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings. And, like, the, the, the waiter couldn't have been, like, I che- when I came in, I cheered for, I think it was a J.R. Smith three. And I couldn't have been, like, immediately, it was almost like, they knew that I wasn't rooting for the Warriors. Well, I guess you could when I'm the only one cheering in a in a loud room. But they put me immediately in the center of the Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there cheering for I'm sitting there cheering for the Cavs. And for each shot the Warriors make, everyone's like, Yeah, like all around me. I'm like, guys, okay, I get it. Like, geez. It was it was amazing. And to, for them to win and have silence on all their faces, I got out real quick, but it doesn't matter how fast I left. I was just hyped at the fact that it was done. Um, but then the Warriors had to mess around and get Kevin Durant, and then they sparked my fiery anger against them all over again. So that happened. Um, and then when they lost to the Raptors, I think it softened for me then, and then I jumped against not liking the Clippers, even though the Clippers don't give you anything to not like. Yeah, they're a good team. Yeah really really quickly yeah pat beverly is pat beverly but like they're not all of a sudden acting oh yeah we're all good like the ones who montrez harrell you know pat beverly the ones who are getting your face and loud and they're still the same play they were like that when they were on a less talented team you know what i mean so i yeah. can't not like for that. and the fact that Kawhi Leonard and pat Be- and, and 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 uh paul george got together it was like okay well i guess they're doing what every other team does like there's nothing for me not to really like about them but i find a way anyway so like <laughs> My team, but growing up, um, the Spurs, I, they would get away with such dirty stuff, um, Bruce Bowen especially, and then they would all do the Tim Duncan or what me face. Yeah. I never liked that. That always grinded my gear. Um, and then the Celtics, you know, it was the classic teams, but that especially was was kind of funny to think about <laughs> because when that Warriors team lost, they like I, I 
soften my uh, feelings toward them, but I was so angry. And then I think, remember, I got angry again when they got DeMarcus Cousins. I think we were still talking about that at the time. And I was like, it is so not fair. And, or something. I was on Twitter raging about that. And it turned out obviously different. But I was, uh, yeah, I, as long as the Super Team is, my, is not my Lakers, I may have some anger, but then I can look back and, 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 and kind of soften towards that. No, yeah, I agree. There's just like, I, I have that thing with super teams too. I, I think a lot of people do too, where it's just like, you don't want to see just, I mean, it's what I said it before about like the 17 and 18 finals. It's like, you just don't want to see the same thing and you don't want to know what's going to happen ahead of time. Um, and because the Warriors were so dominant and because the Cavs were good, but just the East was so weak at that time, you just, just the fact that you went into those two seasons, you know, back to back, knowing, basically knowing who was going to be in the finals for me, it really just hurt my excitement and, you know, I think that recently, the past year, you know, especially this season, I've gone into it with even more excitement uh, because you don't know who's going to win. And that's, you know, you know, those years when I was getting into the game, it wasn't like super teams were running through the league. So that's, you know, and then, of course, you know, the Heatles were kind of the, the next involvement of, of super teams. So I agree with you there. I think a lot of people would agree with us in terms of like not liking super teams, at least until they're humbled, which, you know, sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't happen. Sure, exactly. <laughs> You know, I just, that, man, what, that, <laughs> like, it's weird about how emotions and such go off of that, but it really does, like, fortunes and, and can turn for teams on a dime, and so can fandoms, if, or so can, like, favors of people, if it's like, hey, I like this team, wait, they did what? Forget them, you know, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> fun times, but okay, so now we're getting to, gonna breeze through the best games you've ever watched, and then we'll kind of stop on the worst games, but, Eric, for you, you know, we watch a lot of basketball. What's the best games that you've watched? Are like, wow, that was. I am better for having experienced that. God, there are there are almost like too many. I've only written down like a couple of them that really stick out, and you know, some of them. You know, honestly, w- one of the only good things about the suspension going on right now is that that not only has the NBA been showcasing like throwback games on their social media channels, wow. but like, but like just like YouTube is just, you know, such an extensive place where you can find like almost anything. So having some more time to just like look back at some of these games and some of them are like the ones that I remember watching at the time and like trying to rewatch it again and be like, Oh yeah, that was just as absurd as I remember it. And then other games that you had forgotten about or had only seen parts of, um, and you go back and watch them as like, Oh my God. Yeah, that was crazy. But, uh, I mentioned, so in terms of like, a lot of them are playoff games because obviously there's just so much more drama there. But there are some regular season games that were like, oh, my God. Um, Suns-Nets double overtime in 2006. Um, the, Suns, <clears throat> the Suns won 161 to 157. Steve Nash had 42 points and 13 assists. And Jason Kidd had a 38-14 and 14 triple-double. Um, just an absurd, just an absurd game. Uh, Steve Nash had a clutch three. I want to say the end of the first overtime that was like, oh, my God, this guy's an assassin. Uh, but just like so much scoring, double overtime. Just I, it was such a great game. Um, I mentioned the Hawks-Warriors game from 2015. Just like just such great execution from, from the two best teams in the league. Um, game seven of the 2016 finals, I think, you know, the, the drama and the big plays um, that were made in the closing minutes really made that game like legendary. Um, but it was just a, such a close game and just so much was on the line. Um, which I think does add to some of the games in terms of like how memorable they are. Um, Warriors Thunder, uh, February 2016, when Steph had that game winner from almost half court and hit 12 threes and it was an overtime game. Just like absurd. I mean, that was one of those moments where you're like, you realize like this guy's like 
one of the all-time greats, like that kind of <laughs> that kind of game. Um, yeah. Game six of the 2013 finals, obviously well known for Ray Allen's three-pointer, um, but just such a back-and-forth game that you know all the drama and you know just you know Chris Bosh's block at the end of the game, which is is not you know, remembered enough, I think. It was just such a great defensive awareness play that, you know, me loving defense and all my defensive players could really appreciate. Right. <laughs> um, let's see, what other ones? Uh, Spurs Thunder, uh, game six of the Western Conference Finals in 2014. Um, the Spurs uh, won in overtime um, to advance to the finals in OKC. And it was so, you know, such tense drama because the Thunder were trying to keep the, their season alive at home, but the Spurs just... Just I, I, overtime games in the playoffs are just so thrilling. Um, uh, Warriors Cavs Christmas Day 2016, um, the finals rematch, but it was the first time that KD and LeBron were going up in that rivalry. Um, yeah. But Ky- Kyrie hit that go-ahead shot against Thompson with three seconds remaining. Just you know, Christmas Day games are so. I mean, NBA on Christmas is so great, and that was like just one of the best ones probably ever. Um, couple of other playoff games from my uh, son, my seven seconds or less Suns era. Um, game six of Suns Mavericks from 2005. Um, really, this whole series is one of like the most enjoyable series to watch. I've actually slowly got watched bits and pieces of like every game from this series recently. Um, this is this is that series. A lot of people, if you don't remember it, is the series. Basically, the Mavericks game plan was to make Steve Nash a scorer rather oh. than a playmaker. And so let me yep. tell you what Steve Nash did. 48 points in game four, 34 in game five, and 39 in this game six overtime victory to clinch the series. I mean, they basically were like, you have to score to beat us. And Steve Nash was like, okay, I can do that too. Um, <laughs> like, such, just such a great series, um, really memorable. And then the following year in 2006, I think a very, very underrated series is Suns Clippers. I mean, this Suns, yeah. the Suns won in seven games. Um, this game, game five in particular, was a double overtime victory for the Suns, 125 to 118. The game itself overall wasn't great up until the fourth quarter because the Suns were basically blowing the Clippers out. But the Clippers came back from 19 down in the fourth quarter. Uh, but the Suns pulled it out in double overtime. Uh, really a great series. In this game specifically, Sean Marion had 36 points and 20 rebounds, which is just absurd. Um <laughs> But again, and for people who don't remember, this was the this was the year that the Suns didn't have Amari Stoudemire um, because he hurt. Uh, he, I think he tore his ACL. I think it was like in the fourth game of the season in the regular season, so he was out. Um, but they still made the conference finals, and this game was one of the reasons why. So that series, that overall, that series, like if you have time, anyone listening to this has time to go back and watch some of the games from the Suns Clippers series in two thousand six. Like I feel like that's like one of the most underrated, like fun series ever. Um, it just happened to be right at the perfect timing to hook me into the sport of basketball. Um, so yeah, those are just some that like really stuck out when I was when I like saw this uh, question. I was like, you know what? I remember these games. Let me Google them to make sure I'm thinking about the same thing because you know it has been like 15 years. But, but <laughs> I'm a sucker for high scoring overtime games. Basically, <laughs> I, I mean those are the best kinds of games. I mean. I, I love those because, one, you know you're going to get plenty of offense. Two, it's going to be tight if it's going to overtime and double overtime, whatever the case may be. And three, usually those games have memorable moments, players, you know, it's not just a run-of-the-mill game, or sometimes it is, and it just is elevated above that. So I'm right there with you. Mine are all over the place. So um, the first one I have was, um, and again, you, you talked about the um, game six of the 2015 uh, playoff series against the Clippers. 
first of all, the Rockets come back like you said, like for the from three one down. But secondly, um, just watching Josh Smith and Corey Brewer play out of their minds, um, that was crazy. See, I I would have put that on the list if I could have best quarters I've ever watched because the first three quarters of that game were so like very <laughs> only were they painful being a Rockets fan, but they were just like. It was like an average run-of-the-mill blowout until the fourth quarter, in which case, again, for those who don't remember, which it wasn't that long ago, it bears repeating that Josh Smith, Corey Brewer, and a 37-year-old Jason Terry. Jason Terry, that that trio alone brought the Rockets back from like 18 or 19 down to to win the game. James Harden didn't play a second in the fourth quarter, and they still won. It was insane. I'm uh, just looking back on it now, I'm like, well, I mean, James Harden, he went five for 20. It was a horrible game, like you said. And all of a sudden, Josh Smith and Corey Brewer must have thought that they were like, I don't know, Chris Mullen and, and I don't know, another great shooter, uh, just randomly. Like, they were just knocking down threes. I mean, I thought Corey Brewer made more than the two he knocked down. But Josh Smith was not only making them. He had a pull-up one, I think. He had one over DeAndre Jordan. It was like, okay, Josh, you've always thought you were better three-point shooter than you were. But at this moment, right now, and what's even funnier is that they needed that game. You know what I mean? That was elimination. Oh, yeah. It would come back from 3-1, so I had to put it there, even though you're right. The game as a whole, uh, speaking of another game that was kind of ugly, but I enjoyed partially because of uh, late game heroics, was game, again, another game six of the 2016 uh, first round between the Charlotte Hornets and the Miami Heat. I look at that really as Dwayne Wade's last hurrah as far as, like, leading a team, mm-hmm. um, but he knocked down two big four-quarter three-pointers. Uh, and not a really good three-point shooter, or historically, not really good at all. Um, he only had 23 points, but that was enough to lead the Heat in this dogfight of a game. Final score was 97-90. And it's against a, a fun um, Hornets team I really liked, with uh, Frank Kaminsky and Kimba Walker, Courtney Lee, Marvin Williams, Big Al Jefferson, and uh, Jeremy Lin. I, that was one that... Hmm? I was going to say something about that team, because that... That team that you mentioned, it I, I remember it, you know, pretty vividly now. Um, two things about that team: one, that really should probably be an honorable mention on my favorite teams list, or that that question you asked about which team kind of like captured your attention for like basically only one season. That team yeah. was such a weird team, um, but they were like so good. I mean, just really well coached, um, and that's that that team is one of the reasons why, and other reasons, but like I think that Steve Clifford is a really nice coach um, in terms of getting the most out of his players and you know how his schemes work. But another sad thing about that Hornets team is that it happened and this happened to other teams too like the Trailblazers that year too is that they had success right before the salary cap spike so they were like oh yeah this team is the team to carry us for the future and they spent all of their money on Batum and Marvin Williams and just you know kind of killed their entire future but they had that one magical year seven game series against the Heat you know good for them <laughs> you're right Jeremy Lingo which I didn't let him he got a good offer from Brooklyn he ended up getting in the pen year where it was a fun squad. I mean, just an interesting mix. You had, I love the uniforms. It, it was, it was, it was a good team. Um, so that was when I, um, another one, this was the second round. No, this was first round as well. Um, game, th- game three between the Dallas Mavericks and San Antonio Spurs in 2014, uh, a game winner, but that entire series was so fun, nip and tuck. Obviously the Spurs are going to win the championship. They had this well-rounded team basketball concept, but, for the Mavericks, I mean, they were feisty. They were there. It was Dirk, Monte Ellis, Sean Marion, Jose Calderon, Samuel Dallenbear. It was the last, like, really good playoff series. It may have been the last playoff. No, they ended up going in 2015. But it was, like, the last really good kind of, like, playoff series for Dirk 
um, with that mass era where they were really competing and Samuel Dallenberg had himself some minutes and Monte Ellis. It was fun. It was capped off with that Vince Carter three in the right corner over Manu Ginobili. And so narrow window where he got the shot off as Manu was still flying. He had to take it. He couldn't wait till Manu had finished landing on that kind of way. And it went around the buzzer. And them going to seven games, but that game was fun to me. Um, I just wish it was a lot of but the 1995 um, uh, NBA Western Conference Finals, of course, NBA, between the Rockets and the Spurs, a lot of fun to be able to check that out. Um, Robinson versus Elijah one. And what I didn't realize is, one, I love the way the Spurs played back then. It was definitely ahead of its time. Two, yeah, Elijah one completely outclassed Robinson. He totally did. He could not be stopped. But looking back at it, Robinson had himself some moments. And so did Avery Johnson, who impressed <laughs> me with the way he played. Like, those games were classic. Um Game seven of the 1988 Eastern Conference Finals, if I remember that right. Um, Larry Bird versus Dominique Wilkins, which was an exciting game um, and a lot of fun to be able to check that out. Um, and that was one that it was just, it wasn't even, it was kind of slow. Like Dominique was scoring throughout and then Larry Bird didn't really get going until later on. But in that fourth quarter, that back and forth, like the highlights show it just like the game was. And then lastly, I'd have to put, um, and this is kind of painful for me, but game six of the 2013 um, NBA final between the Spurs and the Heat, um, Ray Allen with the shot. I remember going on Facebook. I think the, the, Rock, the Spurs were up. I don't really remember. I try to forget this, but I don't really <laughs> remember how many points the Spurs were up. But it was winding down, and I was like, the Spurs have won the championship. I'm so proud. You know, all the this and that to show the Heat again that it takes more than, you know, I don't know. It was just on and on. And I put the post up and then I went back to watch the game because it was during a timeout that I put the post up. And then the, you know, Ray Allen hits the shot, goes to overtime, rock, the heat win. I'm so distraught that I forget that I had the post up. So it wasn't until, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until the next day I'm getting, you. I didn't test my phone. You suck. You're wrong. Dude, this and that. <laughs> I like those apples and replays of that shot again and again. So when I see that shot, I didn't even like the Spurs that much, but I was so invested in the Heat losing that every time I see a shot, it almost as if it was my team that got hit with that dagger. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to put that up there. Um, real quick though, I've, I'm so thankful for your time here, Eric. But before we go out here, um, do you have any worst teams that you like? I just want to run through this one or worst games that you ever watched. I want to run through this one. I have one more question, but I had to mention to the Knicks Heat, um, Eastern playoff series as an excuse to get them out there and how much I did not like that. And I guess you use that with any early 2000 um, New Jersey Nets Pistons games as well. So I'm throwing them out there, but I'm throwing it to you now. What's, what do you have there? Oh, I'll tell you right now, the 2003 NBA finals between the Spurs and Nets is like, <laughs> I mean, if you want to, if you want to, if someone wants to get out of loving basketball, you, they should probably watch that series because again, that really tests the love of the game. I mean, just the, uh, that, like you said, the whole early 2000s was just like, it really was hard. And that's, I think, you know, luckily I, I kind of got into it like 2004, 2005 when there still were a lot of those teams. But I think that's a huge reason why the Suns were like the, the, the um, not the antagonist, but like kind of like going rogue and like doing the entire opposite of like they're actually playing fun basketball. <laughs> so that's why yeah. I gravitated towards them and a lot of people gravitated towards them too. Um, I'd say that like, um, well, first of all, <laughs> any game from the Bobcats 7 and 59 season can make this list. I mean, that season, not that I really paid attention to, I wasn't a Charlotte Bobcats fan, but oh my God, mm -hmm. like 
just sometimes if you want a good laugh, you could like go back at their look at their schedule on ESPN for that season, just see all the red L's. Oh my god, dude. Any of those games can make this list. Um, I say the 2018 finals overall, besides game one, were just such just such a slog, like not, not like a slog in terms of style of play, but like they were just all basically blowouts. Um, and the Warriors swept the Cavs. Like that series really kind of, you know, kind of dampened, you know the excitement because it's the finals. You want to be super excited about the matchup and, you know, the drama and there just was none of that at all. So I'd, yeah. I'd say I thought that entire series up on this question too. Um, but like, I think for me, the, the toughest thing is that once I watch a really bad game, I just do everything in my entire nature to block it from my memory. So I don't even <laughs> usually have specific games that are so bad, but I do remember like really bad teams or like really bad eras um, so like the early 2000s, I think would, would perfectly make this list. Um, another, now that I think about it, honestly, I don't know why this is so random, but I'd say for my, uh, favorite teams, I'm going to throw in the, uh, 2009, uh, Orlando magic as an honorable mention there. Um, yep. and I think I'm also going to throw, uh, Stan Van Gundy on my favorite coaches thing because he, it's funny. Cause like, I think between the two of us, we've hit on all like the offensive, like revolutionary coaches. Um, but Van Gundy also was kind of a guy who did a little bit more, uh, was a little bit more ahead of his time. I think specifically, you know, this year playing uh, Richard Lewis at the four next to Dwight to, to make sure that there are four shooters around Dwight. You know, at that time, it still wasn't a popular, you know, strategy. Um, and so, you know, he also had a pretty good personality and, you know, I, one of the most, I, iconic awkward interactions between coach and player when the rumors came out that Dwight wanted him fired and, oh, and no. is drinking the diet Pepsi at the interview and Dwight comes and hugs him or puts his arm around him. It's a top five iconic, just so awkward. It's such an awkward moment. So, um, but yeah, going back to the worst games, it's just so hard to pick specific games. I just, I just kind of like group a lot of things into like time periods. So early two thousands, um, I think 2017 and 18, there was a lot of great, like, regular season action. Um, but in terms of, like, playoffs and the finals, I think it was kind of a dud. Um, but, yeah, that, that's what it is. I feel that. No, you ran through some a really comprehensive list there. I have to add, um, if you watch any of the 2015-2016 Lakers games, um, we lost 65 of them. Um, chances are you'll find a bad one. Most of them were that year. Um, and you're right. I mean, the, you want to watch the bad, those bad Bobcats teams, um, the bad process teams i mean the process oh, 76 had some ugly games um oh my goodness uh yeah there, there was some rough there was some rough ones but i had to throw out the knicks and uh heat and how a lot of my basketball experience was ruined by a lot of just <laughs> ugly slow games of terrible shots and uh, arguably good defense but i had to throw it out there okay last question for you man eric why do you love the game if you could kind of it's a tough one but it's also like i don't know it's weird what do you like think of that's like you know what this is the game for me like this is this affirms my fandom or love for this game uh i think uh i have to say it's just the flow of the game uh the back and forth nature that you really don't get in other sports um that makes me love basketball more than those sports i think players being forced to play both sides of the floor is is a key thing you know the constant action um running and transition you know the back and forth you know teams playing off of each other um, one, it always keeps you entertained, but two, it always can change the dynamic of a game. Um, but then I, you know, I, I, you have like little things like play calls after timeout plays, you know, small defensive tweaks that make a big difference that you really have to focus on that, you know, that maybe a casual viewer wouldn't notice. I, I really do appreciate and pick up on those things a lot of the time. Um, I think there's so many things, but like, I think that the unique styles of play that you come across, I mean, you can get a team 
for instance, that focuses on the post or the mid-range playing a team that basically focuses on threes and playing at a fast pace. You know, Suns versus Spurs back in the day, Spurs versus Rockets, to the, you know, the past couple of years. <laughs> um, and the ultimate thing, I think, like I said, you know, the Suns really got me into the sport, ball movement, fast pace, three-pointers, um, spacing the floor. That's kind of the, the strategy and style of play that I still like the most today. Um Shout out to the Spurs, the 2014 Spurs. You know, obviously they're known as the beautiful game Spurs, but just just seeing what great ball movement, like the effect that great ball movement can have, one on results, but two on the like entertainment aspect of the game, um, it is really enjoyable for me. So I really do enjoy watching teams that have great ball movement combined with you know an up tempo pace and like modern you know floor spacing. I don't want I don't want great ball movement that's just going to result in like. 10 second post-ups. I want like ball movement. It's going to move, you know, around the entire arc and stuff. And then finally, I mean, you know, everyone, you know, probably loves the drama of late game situations, you know, buzzer beaters. It's, it's just so hard to beat. I mean, you can get like walk-off home runs in baseball. You can get last second, you know, touchdowns or field goals in, in football, but like, just like, again, that back and forth, that flow that, that bleeds into a buzzer beater um, is just so great. So I think it's just the flow and, and the kind of, back and forth nature of the sport that keeps me entertained. And then, and then from there diving into the, the nitty gritty details from a play to pay, play to play basis is probably what makes me still maybe fall in love with the game and still love the game. Man, that was such a great <laughs> list right there. I appreciate that. Um, honestly, like, I just want to thank you for your time. It was good to get back. Wait, I've, I've got, a, I've got a question time. for you. I've got a question uh -oh. for you. Oh, uh oh, let's get it. <laughs> this is a, this is going to be a bold one here, but all right. So all right. we talked about how we came to love the game, why we still love it. You know, favorite teams, players, coaches. But now let's look forward, and let's see what are there any rule or game changes that you want to see in the future. Oh I've got I've got a <laughs> I've got a couple I've got a couple that I've that that are probably controversial, but uh, I, I'm I'm pretty passionate about them. Okay, you know, I've been thinking long and hard about this, and I even had to go to um, the NBA um, today, uh, or not the NBA today, NBA 2K. Remember how they have that feature where you change the rules? Or you don't have to change the yeah, rules, yeah, but when yeah, you yeah. play my team, that was where I had to go, where um, I, where it was for that. For, for me, I couldn't think of, I would say, okay, one, I mean, and this is, you know, uh, 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 okay. I would move the draft to after free agency, first of all. Okay. I think first you you have the players enter free agency. I know it's not really a rule as much as like a thing, but I, it kind of falls in the same boat for me. But then you can kind of gear your team and draft for positions of need and then not draft someone, somebody come available. Um, another thing I would do, the shot, this always annoys me, but when the shot clock violation happens and like it's a scrum for the ball, the shot clock violation happens, the other team gets to rebound, and they, like, blow the way. You know, you have to take the ball out of possession or shot clock violation first. Yeah. Scratch that. Like, if the other team gets possession, move on. Like, yeah. that. that's kind of where I'm at. Um, the other, and this is weird, but I don't, and I don't really know how to fix this because it's, it's, like I said, it's weird. But as far as the shot clock is concerned, I almost want to make 14 seconds, period. Like, that's, talk about, that's a bold one. <laughs> I mean, we talk about speeding up the game. I mean, that that isn't wouldn't that be speeding up to a like yeah a little a quick degree? But we're going bold here. These are these are rule changes that have to be made. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, 
you talk about the running gun. How quick would teams play? And maybe this is just me on some uh, caffeine right now. <laughs> but if you have 14 seconds to advance the ball and get offense out, are we going back to the 80s with the way that players shoot now? Would it possibly be better in that way? Um, I don't know. And then third, and this is probably more controversial, bring back hand checking. Hmm, interesting. Because if we're going to combat the great free-flowing, a lot of advantage has been given to the offensive player in years past, and it's made for an enjoyable product as far as watching, but it's also made defense kind of futile, especially with different advantages that the offensive player has now in order to kind of, you know, uh, pump fake, get players to dump into them, the, the same type of um, gimme fouls that we see all over. I, I, I would like hand-checking. I think that, you know, you have guys like... Uh, uh, well, I mean, especially with guys like Draymond Green, who already is a defender now. I, I think that that would be something cool. I mean, they took that in the 2005, in the 2005 season, but if you're going to shorten the time clock, but then bring back hand-checking, I think you kind of balance it a little bit. It's still kind of crazy, and I know it's kind of crazy, but you kind of give some advantages back to defensive player, and I think that that needs to happen even out the kind of give and take that the game of basketball evolves every couple of years or every kind of decade or so. I'm a proponent of uh, really uh, bold changes, as you'll hear in a second. But the reason, the, the consideration for the 14 second permanent shot clock, the reason that I would be against that only is because for those teams, and there are teams obviously, and there are a lot of them that set up plays, and the extra 10 seconds would be like, I don't think you'd have enough time to bring the ball up the court and actually execute a play in 14 seconds. So then I think a lot of offenses would suffer. I mean, you'd have a more up-tempo game because you'd be forced to play that way, but I think the actual execution, um, especially in the half court, but even in general, you, you'd almost have to go back to, to like Doug Moe's system of just no plays and just complete freelance offense. And, you know, that could be good, but also could be like really hard to watch because people, there'd be no plays to get open shots. Um, and defenses will only have to guard for 14 seconds as opposed to 24. So that's one reason why I'd, I'd probably, you know, be against that one. But in terms of uh, speeding up the play, um, I got two, two uh, things. One is I think a lot of people agree and have called for this, but those, you know, those BS Euro fouls that players take to stop transition opportunities, like a missed shot, the player, a team is clearly about to have like a four on three, five on three advantage. And a guy just, you know, grabs the player running in transition, you know, the needs to, yeah, the Jokic foul, there needs to be a harsher punishment for that. There needs to be like two foul, like two, two free throws and the ball for the team that got fouled wow. because, because. I mean, if you want the you know, transition is one of the most exciting aspects of the game. I mean, that's where you get a lot of the, you know, crazy dunks or just great, you know, you know, high speed action. And right now the league is just letting players and teams just like cut down on those, on those highlights, basically. So that's one thing. Number two, I'm really starting to think about, I haven't really finalized if I actually like this idea, but I'm starting to think about having one free throw for every shooting foul. So if you're fouled inside the arc, you take one free throw and it's worth two points. And if you're fouled behind the arc, you take one free throw and it's worth three points. Now, three. Now, on the other hand, I think, some, I think something has to happen with free throws, especially beyond the arc. I feel like if you get fouled behind the arc, you, know, you can either just make it two free throws if you want to keep the rule the same way. But if you're going to go with this one free throw for everything rule, it, it does, you know, you'll have more 
actual game flow and less time, less stoppage at the free throw line. You know, I do get the concern of like people won't have enough time to like rest up and catch their breath, which maybe you have to add in like another, an additional like TV timeout or something. Um, but I do think maybe having less free throws during the actual game might make for a more enjoyable experience. Um, another one I've done, I actually did this in 2K. I have a my league going right now and I set up this rule uh, playoff seating being one through 16, regardless of conference. That's I like that. That's something I'm here for. I know you obviously would have to alter the schedule to have more travel days, and you'll probably get some West versus East East matchups like in the first round. Um, and I do get the argument that you'd lose out on those like conference rivalries. But if you really think about it, at this point in today's NBA, are there really any of those rivalries that you're kind of scared of missing? You know, in the future. I mean, those legendary rivalries haven't really been. Either they, either those teams haven't been meeting in the playoffs for several years, or the teams haven't been good, or they just, yeah. you know, there really isn't as much of an emphasis on rivalries anymore. And I feel like I'd rather focus on having the two best teams make the finals. But this, this all pales in comparison to my ultimate rule change that I want to see. I want a four-point line in the NBA. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> now that would definitely kind of impact some pace of play. For sure. Not pace of play, but pace of the game as far as, like, shots going up and stuff. That's something else. You got to explain this more. Yeah, let's, let's listen, I've heard, I've heard all about it. Oh, no, we're not, it's too much of a joke, whatever. Say, I, I need, I must I remind people that when the three-point line was introduced in 1979 and 1980, people also referred to it as a joke that would never be used. So I don't want to hear that whole it's a joke thing for that argument. Number two, True. players <laughs> got, I've got, I've got prepared for this. Players that can already hit from that deep. It's a very, very short list. Steph, Damian Lillard, you know, maybe Harden would attempt some. There's just they're not that many p- players that can hit from that deep anyways. Those players will just continue to take those shots. They'll be worth four points now instead of three. But at the, at the same time, you're not going to see random people start taking four pointers. You know, the, the guys that can barely hit three pointers now are not going to all of a sudden start taking four pointers because those are really difficult shots. So it's not like, you know, people say, oh, you're going to get all those guys jacking from deep. I wouldn't I would disagree. I would think that at first the people that can already make those deep shots would just continue to take them and be rewarded an extra point for them. And then slowly, gradually, players that are elite three point shooters would start practicing four pointers. You know, the elite three point shooters like Joe Harris would probably start trying to take deeper threes because he's already so good at the, at the, at the normal three-point line. Um, you know, maybe in the long run, you'll probably see a lot of kids growing up and young prospects. Maybe they could potentially be fo- focusing too much on the four-pointer. I can but, see that. But that's why I think the whole difficulty of the shot would, pre- pre- would probably prevent that. I mean, it, it's going to be such a hard shot to master. And then I think if you can master it, you should be rewarded with an extra point. I mean, I think... It's not something I think that people would just naturally, oh, it's in the it's in the league now. Oh, I'm going to take 204 pointers this year. No, I think you'd probably see a, a small quantity. And then each year, the quantity of, of attempts from four-point line would go up. Um, but I'm not sure if there would be a, a point where everyone's only taking four-pointers. Uh, and then, you know, I just love to see what some of these offensive coaches could do with extra floor spacing. And, you know, you get more offense, which I think would be good to attract a younger audience and make the NBA an even more popular sport. And I want to see revolutionary change on my watch. So there I mean, you go. Listen, listen <laughs> Eric is going to pound that drum. I'm there for it. It would be fun to see a Brooke Lopez four-point shot. <laughs> I, I mean. Would, I would love. Uh, I would 
who would be the I'm trying to wonder who would be like would be the weirdest like big man to take the four pointer regularly. It probably would be Brooke because he kind of really revolutionized the three pointer the most as a big man. But oh man, it'd be so interesting to see the dynamic of people trying to trying to learn how to you know get comfortable shooting from there and then seeing who could actually you know hit from there what the percentages would be like how it would change things there's just so many interesting dynamics that would happen from adding the four point line for real i can see maybe al horford getting one or two of those maybe mark gasol um couldn't really you're right it'd have to be brooke lopez who could take them i mean would be taking a lot of them at least because it's it's weird the guard of the day we had like a i mean the big men are still shooting threes but it's it's easy to remember Channing Fry or Al Harrington, Mehmet Okur, Okur um, Dirk, obviously. We'll see how DeMarcus looks when he gets back for sure. But, yeah, that would be very, very interesting. I like that. Because look the, at this. Already. Uh-huh. I was going to say the toughest thing for big man taking that shot is, I mean, when you see guys like Curry and Dam shoot, like they're using their legs, you know, they're jumping into those shots because it's so from, from so far deep. But big man, they 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 kind of shoot a set shot almost from three, which would be harder if you if you brought them even farther from the basket. Um, so I think that you know obviously the guards and wings would have a, a huge advantage here because they kind of have a you know a more natural jump shooting motion. But it would be interesting to see. I mean, for all we know, there could be the next Manute Bull who comes out of nowhere and just starts knocking <laughs> down threes, and we're like, where did that come from? So. That that could definitely happen, man. <laughs> well, it's been I, a listen, blast here. I, already, I already got your promotion for this episode on Twitter. I, I want to see a tweet whenever this episode comes out that says Eric Sparopoulos is calling for the four point line. <laughs> Dude, I am gonna put that up there. Like this is gonna be coming out like probably tomorrow or Tuesday at the worst. Like it's coming out, and when this does, putting one plug for you on that, I'm putting another plug for me putting the NBA to to run the 14 second shot clock, and I'm gonna get some eyes and ears on this one because. This is hilarious. <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> listen, we're going to have to do this again. Do like a rule change. I'm, we're going to make this happen. This is a, this has to be a thing. <laughs> 14 second shot clock, four point Brown. Let's just, let's just go crazy. Let's go wild. Let's just yeah. make it happen. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I appreciate having you on, Eric. Thank you for giving me your time. It's been a whopper of a show. This You've made history. It was the longest show we've had on NBA today. Um, <laughs> So I'm glad you gave it to me. Um, we, uh, I think the, the second longest one I had was when I was doing the 80s breakdown of, like, the worst teams in the, in the 1989 season. I'm still doing that series. It was so long. I had, like, a, like a, a two-week break after that. So I'm getting back <laughs> on that. But um, thank you for hopping on and helping me out here, man. It's been a lot of fun, and we're going to have to collaborate on this one, another time for sure. I already yeah. have ideas. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Always great whenever we get – whenever we have microphones and a recording uh, – I- capacity in front of us we just we just go on and on and on but it's always fun and we'll definitely have to do more in the future yeah definitely man definitely so uh you can follow him at eric spiros nba uh s-y-r-o-s nba uh make sure child is writing nuggets.com all right on that yep nuggets.com all right great writer man great obviously you're gonna find out or listen great basketball mind definitely make sure you come out um you can check me out if you have any interest after my 14-second shot clock idea. Corbin <laughs> NBA on Twitter. Um, check out hoopball, um, hoop-ball.com at hoopball tweets. And also, um, random shout, definitely make sure to check my bookie out. Um, everyone, my.ag. Give that 50% um, deposit um, back for uh, whatever wages you may take during this time. Because, you know, we're bored. Not much going on. Who knows what you could be thinking. So uh, definitely make sure to take care. Keep your hands clean, maintain that social distancing, y'all, and hopefully I'll be back.
real soon. All right, y'all. This has been a Hoop Ball presentation.